China has a quarter of the world's Alzheimer's patients. With the country's gray population growing rapidly, the number of patients will likely increase fourfold by 2050. Meet the patients, their families and caregivers, and discover the anxiety, struggle and misconceptions behind one of the biggest problems of an aging society in our documentary, Aging in China, Living with Alzheimer's, on CGTN Radio. For podcast listeners, search The Top Story and find the program on all popular podcast apps on September the 21st, the 30th World Alzheimer's Day. Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. As a place where China's Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, was first proposed a decade ago, Central Asia has played a crucial role in regional trade and investment cooperation. So what have been some of the major achievements of the BRI in the region? How has the potential of landlocked Central Asian nations been released through the BRI? And with its central geostrategic location, what role does Central Asia play in the global competition between the world's major powers? To discuss these issues and more, I'm honored to have this exclusive interview with Juma Altbaev, former Prime Minister of the Kyrgyz Republic. That's the topic. I'm Xu Qinduo. Welcome to Dialogue, Mr. Altbaev. I will start with uh, BRI, this uh, topic of the day. You know, it has been 10 years, the 10th anniversary. So how do you say about its past 10 years, the track records? Uh, first of all, Belt and Road Initiative became global. More than 150 countries subscribe to this initiative. More than 30 international organizations is part of it. So it's really uh, take enormous attention from outside world. And we are in Central Asia, indeed, 10 years ago, where was the place where President Xi Jinping made announcement of this initiative. And I can uh, talk for a very long time about what has been accomplished during that time, in, especially in energy cooperation, in communications, in digitalization, in many aspects. But I want to underline only one important aspect is that Currently, Central Asia became transfer itself from landlocked to land-connected area. When 10 years ago, uh, traffic between China and Europe started to develop, uh, many experts and analysts uh, were thinking about that beginning as a joke, not anymore. Uh, last year, a lot of traffic started to move between Europe and, uh, and China, and 16,000 trains passed in both directions during this time, which means every hour two trains moved in both directions. And the time of delivery also shortened significantly. Now, in, in 11 days, the train could pass between Chongqing and Duisburg quickly. And this time will be shortened even further when the new segment will be built between China through Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan further 
through the Caspian to Europe for another 900 kilometers. So decision has been made between our countries and very soon it will be a feasibility study ready and discussion on how and who will do the whole project. So we have a lot of potential, but I also want to underline the recent summit of our presidents, five presidents of Central Asia countries and China in Xi'an, where a very ambitious program has been established how to improve our relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, sounds uh, you know ambitious, promising for this region and for China for their cooperation. You once said that you know infrastructure alone seems not to be enough. You also mentioned about the people-to-people -people exchange. You proposed the competition of infrastructure and also people-to-people -people exchange. Why such a proposal? Because you have to create friendship. The trust has to be built between not only political circles but between simple people. So public in both areas, in China and in Central Asia, should believe that this cooperation will bring real fruits. Because as Confucius used to say, if the lack of trust, all talks are meaningless. And we have to face reality. For the last hundred years, we were disengaged in terms of trade, investment. Only last 30 years, mm -hmm. some movement started. It's not enough. So we need to put more attention to show to people in both countries who we are, what our intentions, why we want to make trade, why we want, for example, to borrow resources, uh, and, and, and really to make friendship. So friendship cannot be done by the order. It should be done by meeting each other, seeing each other. And we observe this situation during COVID times when we were disengaged and now we finally meeting each other. It is very different uh, uh, feeling when you see, when you meet, when you are going as a tourist, as an expert, as a student, when you start to know more languages, more culture, more differences, more friendship. Yeah, yeah as you, you said, and this is a great point, you know, the whole purpose of this infrastructure construction and the BRI is to get people connected, to get yeah. countries connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about a connectivity, yes. like an Asian Silk Road, you know, connectivity. Yes. Ultimately, it serves the interests for the people. Yes. Um, speak of that, we do. You earlier mentioned about you know Central Asian nations and China. You know earlier the meeting, summit meeting in Xi'an. Uh, one important achievement is really visa-free policies. You know, for for countries, uh, for people in this region. For some countries. For some countries, yeah. not all of them. Not all of them. There's a yeah, potential, step, we step need to do more. Step. It's yeah. first example when Kazakhstan and China decided to uh, get rid of the visa regime and it will be first case and mm -hmm. then uh, others will follow. Yeah, I mean, when other countries see the fruit of um, free you know, traveling freely across yeah. the borders, yeah. probably they will follow suit. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because there are interests uh, there. And your book, uh, published earlier this year, uh, by the title of Central Asia's Economic Rebirth in the Shadow of the New Game. Uh, you mentioned about 30 years independence and achievements of those nations. 
You also talked about the BRI. So has Central Asia, you know, you know how has Central Asian nations grown over the past 30 years, since uh, 30 plus years since their independence? Uh, yes, so the uh, disintegration of our former country, Soviet Union, was enormous shock for everybody. Uh, suddenly, we became five independent nations, so uh, trade became difficult. Uh, we have to transfer our economic system from, let's say, so-called command system to the market economic system to build sovereign institutions. It was very difficult and painful, pa painful times. Mm -hmm. But uh, we uh, came out of this difficult period relatively well. First of all, we didn't have major uh, conflicts uh, in our area, so we, we found a way how to be competitive in the modern economies. So in growing curve, we are in a growing curve, and what is uh, very, very important that last couple of years, Central Asia became visible to outside world as a single region, not five competitors to each other, but we demonstrate ourselves to outside world as one region which have already harmonious relationship between each other. Yeah, we, we can see, you know, with this, um, this growing importance of Central Asia, of Central Asian nations here, of course, you know, with the backdrop of um, what's going on, the Ukraine crisis, or the relationship uh, between Russia and the West, and now the U.S., uh, you know, sort of containment policy against China, you can see a sort of competition in Central Asia. Do you feel there's competition or uh, sometimes you, you see European countries or U U.S. is trying to pull away from Central Asian nations from Russia, for example, because you, you used to be the case there's a strong uh, Soviet or Russian influence there. Yeah. So what we are talking to outside the world is that everybody who has good intentions to the region uh, is welcome. We are landlocked countries, all of us, so we always have habit towards neighbors to be friends. So if you have access to the sea and you don't like your neighbor, you just go to the sea and trade with others. <laughs> trade, yes. In our case, it's different. You have to be good to everybody. Mm -hmm. So we are genetically, on our DNA, is to be friendly towards everyone. If you want to make foreign direct investments, yeah, it's okay. If you want to make exchange, it's fine. If you want to compete with each other, it's fine, but not as a zero-sum game. So if you say, okay, if you go and then don't allow others to come, it is wrong, and everybody understands it. So in, in our case, we really look around and we say we want to have friendship with everyone. Of course, we have to be friendly, first of all, with the neighbors. And among big powers, our neighbors China and Russia. Why shouldn't we uh, have a difficult relationship with them to create barriers or don't, uh, don't build trust? First of all, neighbors is natural partners. Natural, and we were together for centuries, and we will be. Uh, of course, we, uh, you once said that you know, Central Asian nations should get, um, uh, seek a deeper involvement in China's modernization drive, in China's high-quality development. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about that. It's a very important uh, question. Uh, the, the issue is that as a legacy of the former Soviet Union, our population is very well educated. 
We have very um, healthy demographic situation. We have good educational institutions. Our young generation really feeling that they have to be part of the 21st century development. And that is why we were enthusiastic when China agreed this year that the next vector of your development will be modernization, high quality development. We need not only have a trade with energy or have excellent trade relationship infrastructure. We want to be together with anybody around the world in digital direction. I don't see the reason why we, our talents, our young people, very educated, can join whatever power around the world to generate new product of 21st century. We are neighbors. China is doing very well in technology of 21st century, in green economy anywhere. Why don't we build together, for example, Asian Silicon Valley? What, what happening now that our talents, all our talents go to California to work, to, to produce with a lot of young people mm -hmm. from our countries there. Everybody, why we can't do Asian Silicon Valley, where our talents would be look around, look to the east as well, because China is doing very well in, in high-tech development, discoveries, inventions. You could also invite talents around the world to create here in your country favorable conditions for debate, discussion, brainstorming, creating product which will be demanded by 21st century priorities. Mm -hmm. So by bringing talents here, obviously talents are also from Central Asia. Everywhere. Young people. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. We are neighbors. Mm -hmm. We are from our capitals to Urumqi, it's a one hour flight. It's easy. For example. So please make efforts to bring more talents around the world, not Central Asia only, but from out of the world. Attraction of talents will be the most important element of external relationships. Yes, Those who will do it better will be the winner. Because talent is unique characteristic. Mm -hmm. They have very few. Maybe 10,000 people among 8 billion who would be creative force behind the new technologies. You need to hunt for them. So far, there's only one place which attract them which is California, Silicon Valley. Is it fair? Is it good or not? It's a very important question. As you earlier mentioned about this uh, uh, China, Kyrgyz and Uzbekistan railway, tell us more about that. You mentioned about the saving um, shorter distance, saving time uh, for trade between, let's say, Asian countries and probably European countries, the destination for the journey. Yeah, actually, um, we're talking that about the access east-west. So east-west, they have currently most active northern trajectory via territory of Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Poland, further down. But we have few other alternatives, one of which much shorter through my country, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, further to Caspian and to the Europe. It will be shorter, so quicker. So it shortened distance for another 900 kilometers. 900 kilometers. 900 kilometers. But next to it, it will be possible to do north-south connectivity. Mm -hmm. Let me say, with, uh, through Russia to Central Asia, further down to 
Iran, Afghanistan to South Asia, India, Pakistan. So it could be kind of hub. You can ship goods from east to south, for example, anywhere. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, Central Asia would become again kind of center hub of not only trade, but exchange of ideas. Like it was during the old good days of Great Silk Road, when Central Asia was center of civilization for many centuries, where the most prominent physicists, mathematicians, astronomers, pharmacologists, poets, theologists were created. They work because it was combination of different culture. It was somewhat similar to Silicon Valley, where all talents Mm -hmm. came to Central Asia from east, north, south, and west, and to create products, unique products. So he believes that uh, this uh, infrastructure, this trade, efficient trade between different parts of the world will bring Central Asia back to being center of communication, high quality communication, digital connectivity and mixing of talents. It is possible because instead of going to the extreme of west or east, going to meet in the center. This is our hope and this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. So this railway, first of all, will increase trade because the transportation costs will go down. So in a, if transportation going down, the trade will be increasing. People-to-people exchange will be more Increase. strengthened. Yeah. And then second step is how to bring Central Asia to the map of the world as hub. Mm-hmm. As a hub for Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, or even mm-hmm. Middle East, the Turkey, Europe. Eurasia. We have Eurasia, Eurasia, Eurasia continent. Yes. Uh, the rail transportation, especially with the te- techniques, technology from China, became very efficient. It's compete with the sea transportation. Now, if you go to modernization, high quality development, then we have high quality goods to be delivered yes. between points A and B. Mm-hmm. The speed is important because you Fish don't freeze capital. Right. You don't uh, use too much insurance. Yeah? You play for the green economy, the less carbon emission during. Very quick, few days to deliver goods from China and Europe. So it will be competition to sea transportation, which dominating international trade currently, mm. which is good. And we will be bene- beneficiary. Yeah. So what's the plan? When will the real line uh, go into effect? Uh, you mean this railroad? Yeah, this railroad. OK, uh, it will not be quick. But uh, to my knowledge, uh, this year, the bankable feasibility study will be ready. So who the, the total business plan? And then we have to debate and discuss who will pay, who will build, who will, and when. So there was a political will. All countries along this route will be financing this, this route. The model to be discussed and agreed. But what is important that this is feasible. This road will bring capital back in terms of, in terms of revenues. So it is not a fantastic or artificial approach. It's business, and business will pay for the uh, resources will be invested. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, surrounding this region, we have uh, already like multinational organizations, like uh, you know Shanghai Cooperation Organization. 
in the five uh, countries in the region mostly uh, with some expansion. And now, of course, the expansion is uh, being looked uh, upon. You said in one article this year that you know, as a long-time strategic partner of the U.S., Saudi Arabia's move to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization represents a victory for China. Why do you say that? No, actually, uh, what happened, we already observed a phenomenon of a certain kind of unification of global south into the club in the case of like BRICS. BRICS plus, yeah. yeah. So what I know that uh, many countries among them very influential, including Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, made application to join Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which have a little bit different angle in comparison with BRICS on, on, on cooperation, even more deeper cooperation, I would say, comparison with BRICS. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we are part, we are founding member of Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So the more countries will join CSO, it's better for everyone, for all members. Already now, India, Pakistan, Iran join. The more countries will join, the better. Uh, and everybody understand that the driving force behind both BRICS and SCO is China. China, if I'm not mistaken, accounted for something like 75% of GDP of all these Economic institutions. Yeah? Uh, that is why China led, There's nothing wrong with that. China led uh, the club, but the club has consensus-based decision-making process. Even if you're small, you can veto decisions. So when the institution growing, it will be more complicated way of decision making, but it doesn't mean that it should not be enlarged. That is why I mentioned that this is a victory for China, as well as to other members. Yes, I mean obviously it's like a BRICS uh, expansion uh, is a decision made by all the members, yeah. existing members. They think that's in their interest, yes. in the interest of the group, for expansion. Uh, given you know uh, the role played by China in mediating, uh, say the re-establishment of uh, foreign relations between or resumption of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran, what do you see China's presence or China's role in the future in this region? Yeah, China is very strong economically, number one. Uh, so and it's uh, practicing fair deal with other countries. Uh, being it trade, people-to-people -people exchange, political settlements, political involvement, whatever. So it's very easily can be seen that the role of China in the international arena is increasing. You mentioned uh, China's uh, moderated Iran-Saudi Arabia deal, which is of incredible importance in the Middle East and overall Eurasia. Nobody excludes that it will be more deal of that type uh, because it's win-win-win uh, situation. Nobody uh, lecturing anybody, saying you must not do that or you should do this. Uh, you are uh, doing wrong decision because you made step number one or two or three. So it's kind of harmonious, uh, joint uh, decision-making process. As I mentioned, all those organizations made decisions based on consensus. So it's not pressure, okay. even if China maintains 75% of economy, somebody small can say, no, we disagree, we should do it different way. And then 
we were learning how to build consensus, uh, how to build harmonious future, win-win cooperation, which is good. Uh, back to BRI, you know, for years we have heard of this uh, accusation, mostly from the Western media, of uh, you know that trap associated with uh, those projects um, you know, under BRI. But we also know that you know over the past uh, several years, you know, with the pandemic, and also after the U.S. Uh, increasing its interest rates uh, gradually, we do see some nations are facing this burden of paying debts or mm. uh, problems. You know. How do you look at this debt issue and um, you know, what is the source of the debt problem in developing nations mostly? Then? Uh, when I ask some, anybody how can we help, I always reply, nobody needs help. You need to be responsible partner of anybody. If you're going for the, what you just mentioned, the sovereign debt issue, so you say, okay, you give government guarantee, we will raise money and then you will be owning us some amount of money. There are two partners in that discussion, mm -hmm. recipients and donor. and donor. Both must make responsible decisions. Not only recipient, donor should understand debt sustainability of recipient. I used to say if the debt to GDP exceeds 80%, it's not any more problem of the borrower, mm -hmm. it's problem of the, of the lender. <laughs> because borrowers say, I can't pay. What will happen next? Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I would advise to China to look into the sovereign debt architecture mm -hmm. much more deeper. You have many donor institutions in your country, Exim Bank, China Development Bank, other mm -hmm. institutions, and many of them practicing different procedures. It should be one uniform policy, explain clearly to recipients, at the end it should be paid, because if it will be going to the unsustainable debt situation, then both party, parties will be in problems. Yes. Yeah? It will be speculations. For example, recipients will say, okay, we don't have money, we have asset, take it. <laughs> And then it's becoming uh, this debt trap story. Yeah. Nobody needs it. Nobody needs it. So both recipients and donor must have equal responsibility on striking the deal on borrowing. China have potential of delivering finance, which required by many developing countries, emerging economies, but money should not be spread without considering mm -hmm many times. Need to be more it should be business, it yeah. should be repayable, mm -hmm. it should not be just di di distributing cash. It should be repaid. Debt sustainability should be calculated, so special procedures uh, have to be taken into account. In that respect, I would advise to look into the practices of so-called Paris Club, mm -hmm. of, which dominated by Western development institutions, as well as multilateral institutions like World Bank, Asian Development Bank, which have already quite uh, good practices on how to manage debt, sovereign debt. Right. And, your and, and, and unsustainable debt is bad for everyone. For everyone. Thank you, Mr. Odubayev. With that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guest, Mr. Odubayev. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Xindo. Thanks for being with us. 
see you next time.